I'm Darren. And I'm Esther. And this is Second Sunday, a podcast about Black queer folk finding, keeping, and sometimes losing faith. This season's full of candid conversations. We're talking to theologians, artists, activists, and community members living at the intersections of faith, spirituality, and identity. The saints ain't ready for this. But we're still going to talk about it. Second Sunday. Find it wherever you get podcasts. Second Sunday is a Cube original podcast and is part of the PRX Big Questions Project. I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues. This idea travelogue lists up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. Today, I have a very special guest host on Intersectionality Matters, my friend, my shiro, my muse, Dina Wright-Joseph. Now, Dina, in addition to being an extraordinary, talented dancer and educator, founding member of Pure Elements and Evolution in Dance, and faculty at the Ailey Fordham and Professional Performing Arts High School, she's also an artist in residence at AAPF, and she's been an integral part of our arts and activism work. Most recently, and the topic of our conversation today, she directed AAPF's Young Scholars Program this summer, and it was designed to confront what we have called the knowledge desert that exists relating to Black women and COVID. We wanted to center Black women as authorities of their own lived experience in this moment moment. Now, in the final days of the program, the Young Scholars sat down with Dina and with the Intersectionality Matters team to discuss the profound impact that these dual pandemics are having on their lives, in their communities, in their goals for the future. Joining us virtually from all around the country, these extraordinary young women spoke candidly about mental health, about policing, about their thoughts on returning to campus this fall, and their experiences working together this summer. We're thrilled to bring part of that conversation to you today on Intersectionality Matters. And if you'd like to listen to the full conversation, you can find it at aapf.org. So, Dina, before we dive in, I thought it might be fun to reflect on our working together over the last five years and how we sort of transitioned into this particular moment. What drew you into AAPF? Well, my introduction to AAPF was very swift. Um, (laughs) As many of these introductions have been over our history. (laughs) I committed to the summer camp uh, before I really had a chance to be introduced to the mission of AAPF. Now that summer camp, Breaking the Silence, was um, an arts, activism, and healing summer camp for Black women and girls, and we ran it from 2015 to 2017. Yes, so I joined the team at Vassar initially, you know, the offer was to, you know, make sure the participants are moving and energizing the participants in the day. But when I met the women, all of the brilliant participants, they were from like age 14 to 75. into the 60s, right, to 75, I was saying, well, number one, that's going to craft the way I'm going to create movement because, you know, our bodies move differently. 
you know, uh, depending on where we are in our age range. But then also um, the activism piece was so important. And I remember just sitting up the night before and being like, all right, now what am I going to do? Because this is definitely not simply about the craft of dance. Mm -hmm. I had to make sure that I chose music and movement and a theme that brought the entire community together. So it completely changed the way that I work from that moment on. And I actually took that, that structure and that frame and I've continued it with my younger students. And what is so um, brilliant about what you did was you chose themes each of the three years that we did Breaking the Silence Summer Camp that amplified the work that we were doing, that amplified um, where black women were located, and that, as you said, uh, allowed all of us across um, our age ranges to to participate. Um, we started uh, every morning with movement, uh, followed with meditation, and then breakfast. And it, you know what? It was a challenge, too, because some folks are like, wait, I can't do anything <laughs> without breakfast. I can't do anything before 10 o'clock in the morning. We're like, you know what? It's summer camp. And then after summer camp, we continued to worked together and, and did a, a few productions, including Harriet. So um, that's another sort of adaptation, I guess, starting from the summer camp and moving to something more discreet, but also something that was explicitly telling stories uh, about Harriet Tubman using dance and movement and and drumming and spoken word to create an immersive experience, both for the participants and for uh, the audience. Um, our first, what, performance of that was in Washington, D.C. That was Washington, D.C. Yeah, we were at uh, the Smithsonian for the performance. So we keep, we keep inventing, we keep inventing and moving. So this summer presented another opportunity to invent something new. And of course, when it comes to all things uh, artivistically oriented, I, I have my, my go-to people. And so we started thinking about what could be a way of providing a community in the face of these pandemics. How do we step into this space, given the fact that we are virtual? So that, of course, became the moment that I came, I called you up and said, Dina, we want to do something and we want it to be in the spirit of breaking the silence. We want it to be specifically empowering uh, by addressing what is happening right now. So that was a big sort of here, <laughs> do something. So walk us through your approach to taking up this mantle and actually developing it into what is clearly from what all the young women uh, have been telling us, a beautiful experience. Thank you for that. Um, I can say walking into it was terrifying for me <laughs> because, you know, I consider myself one of your get it girls, you know, like Julia and some of your other team where it's like, you, you know, you just give us the idea you know, we get it in terms of concept. You know, if we don't understand what we're what we necessarily need to do, we, you know, we we get the resources, you know, and we get to work. So that's really how I approached this program. And because our scholars didn't 
most of them didn't identify as artists. I had to make sure that I crafted it in a way and designed the program so that they felt comfortable being creative um, and they didn't feel as if, oh, well, this is not for me because I really came here specifically to become a researcher, you know, under the African-American Policy Forum. But my initial conversation with the scholars was that, you know, it's important to be a creative and it's important to find different ways to share information, especially with our community, because we're very, um, we respond well to storytelling. We respond to information that comes in ways that we can feel as opposed to just like analytical, you know, statistics. Mm -hmm. um, because that's how we experience. We experience this data <laughs> day to day, um, but to be able to organize it and share it in a way that um, multiple audiences can understand, you know, it was really very, very important. And for that, I just felt like we had to really tap into our creativity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What can you share with folks about what resonated with the young women from the conversations uh, that you had and why was it important to come together during COVID? For one, um, as you know, you, you picked the top <laughs> minds, you know, in terms of the, the young scholars who applied for um, the program. I mean, they're just like off the charts, brilliant. So they all felt really confident in their academic achievement and their ability. Um, but what I realized pretty quickly was that they had never really had community because a lot of times uh, because they were you know, academically advanced, they didn't find community in their schools. So then um, when they were moved into gifted and talented programs or into different types of magnet schools, then they found that they were in predominantly white institutions and then they didn't feel community there. Mm -hmm. So most of them actually came into the program not even realizing that that's something they really needed. So pretty quickly I was able to see like within the first week that that was really the gem, that they really needed each other and they needed a safe space where, you know, conversation started to shift from how the way they usually presented themselves, which was, you know, as intellectual, but then started to shift into you know, just some of their own needs as young black women. And I realized that as much as I tried to create a schedule, mm -hmm. that this was just as important yes. that they had each other. And um, also um, they were all in some interesting positions because they're all in undergrad, but they were living on campus. Mm -hmm. So for some, they had in their minds, they'd graduated beyond living at home with their parents mm -hmm. and started to create this life of independence. And then very quickly, very abruptly, they had to go back home. And their parents picked up from where they were, <laughs> you know, before they moved out. So they felt that they'd outgrown their, 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 their living environment. And they didn't, they didn't really have a way to articulate the need to transition their relationships with their parents. And probably something happening across, you know, young people everywhere. And I, I think if I'm not mistaken, we, we have a clip that actually speaks precisely to that. This is Aaron and Mia speaking. 
I've had a lot of friends personally who were not able to seek mental health resources either due to economics or maybe their parents didn't believe it in or maybe it was just not something that was discussed in the house. And so until they got to college, they didn't have the resources, they didn't have the opportunity. And then they got there and they started to pursue them. They started engaging in therapy and they started engaging in meditation and mindfulness. So it's interesting to think of the ways in which COVID has kind of set some people back. You know, me personally, I feel like I was an adult when I was at college and I felt so independent that I had control of everything. And coming back home was kind of hard because, you know, I no longer get to decide uh, how the dishes are put in the dishwasher. I no longer get to decide like what colors the wall are um, or how I move throughout the house when I'm going in and out. And so I felt kind of, um, a lack of independence and I feel like I'm stepping back. I'm taking a step back during this time. It's really important to think about the impact of the home on mental health. During my time with you guys, I found through my research that the mental health stigma that the black community has can be traced back to slavery. And it was thought that enslaved people weren't sophisticated enough to develop mental illnesses. And black people were basically taught to ignore their mental health issues and refer to them as other names, which were basically euphemisms like just being stressed or just being tired. Dina, what was a typical day in the program like? Well, we always started our first hour with what we called our check-in. And um, that was really just anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour where each of the scholars, and they would even ask me, you know, like, where were they? Where, where are they? You know, how were they feeling? What were they needing? You know, um, what bothered them or what made them happy. And then we started to actually show, you know, all of the snacks that we prepared. We was like, okay, I have my tea and I have my watermelon. I have my, you know, so that became a part of the day where we started creating rituals to, to come together. Then on our Mondays and Thursdays, we had um, sessions with Dr. Venus Evans Winters. And she was our advisor who actually taught the scholars the, the actual nuts and bolts of becoming researchers. So from the rituals, which sounds very much like the rituals that we wanted to establish, right, when we were together physically, but then to the information sharing. So who are some of the people who came in and what were some of the things that um, the scholars were able to learn from the, the wonderful list of people that you had lined up? We had Dr. Akisi Britton. We had Dr. Maisha Taylor, Dr. Arabia Mollette, um, Dr. Cindy Duke, uh, Shaka Laguerre, who is the first uh, Caribbean woman to uh, become a clerk in the international court, as well as Camille A. Brown, who is uh, a Tony-winning, Emmy-winning uh, choreographer and a great friend of mine as well. Um, and the scholars had a chance to to listen to them, to talk with them. The speakers wanted to make sure that they, they spoke specifically to COVID, to the effects of Black women and girls, mm -hmm. um, and to education. So our Black physicians didn't only speak about their work on the front lines, but also what were their challenges of becoming Black girls who wanted to become a physician. So they were able to speak from so many different angles and, you know, they were able to just be very, very candid, which was uh, really a, a, a real treat. Yeah, yeah. 
So, you know, Dina, a lot of them actually had parents working in the healthcare industry, those who were on the front lines and hospitals and nursing homes when COVID first hit. So Haley, Starr, and Junia uh, each spoke to this. So, so let's listen to what they have to say. She has to come home and she has to stay away from her family as she goes straight to the shower and she strips naked and gets put the clothes that she wore in a separate pile. And she has to, we can't even, even after the shower, even after she's perfectly clean, every time we're about to give her a kiss, I was just like, stay out of my face. And it's like, you know, it's something that you're constantly reminded where if your family doesn't have a frontline worker, it's not something that you're necessarily constantly reminded about. Like, not only is it the thought of like, oh, you can't even hug your own mother now, you know, it's something that is already a big enough weight on the family dynamic but then you're also constantly reminded that your mom could be sick with covid which is deadly and she could die constantly constantly reminded anytime you want to give your mom a kiss good night you're constantly reminded of this toll that's taking on the family dynamic and it's necessary we need frontline workers we need essential workers and it's amazing what they do these are the leaders these are the world changers these are the uh, the people that we need in society that have a, such a big heart and so i look at my mom and i'm very proud of her i obviously am nervous for her but i don't think i've ever really thought like man i wish she wasn't an er doctor because her her being an er an er doctor is one of the many factors that make her her and it's not something that i would want to change my mom also works in a healthcare facility on a case management team, and she was exposed to COVID during her first week back in the office. And as a Black woman working during this pandemic, I think that the state health system made it pretty clear that productivity was their priority. So they're not necessarily concerned about the safety and health of their workers who are typically Black women. Um, and I think that many Black female healthcare workers are being treated as if they're disposable. Um, and no one necessarily cares about their well-being or their family's well-being. No, I definitely agree with that, Star, um, especially about, like, the idea of being, like, disposable. And, like, things sometimes, too, it's, like, within the states, like, they're just not allocating resources to a lot of these healthcare facilities. They're just not getting support. And, like, support also meaning, like, support for patients who do have it as well as workers, but also just, like, having emotional support and actually being able to, like, help people mentally during this time. Because it is challenging when you're seeing... Um, patients or people that you've worked with um, going through it. And so like for my mom, for example, she's a nursing assistant. And so she works at two different nursing homes. And so she ended up working in a COVID wing. And so she really cares about her patients. And like a lot of her patients did end up getting sick. She was at one of the first places that contracted the most cases. And so she ended up testing positive within a week. But what was hard the most was her experience, of course, testing positive, but also before that, having her go to work every day and come back with another story of like, here's what happened at work and I couldn't help this person the way I wanted to. And so I saw how much of a big impact it made on my mom and just like the fact that there's no real support system. Like, I mean, there is at home, but she's not really getting that outside of work. So, so insightful and so powerful at the same time, you know, in our Under the Blacklight series, we talked early on about the contradiction that so many black women found themselves in, that they were seen as and framed as essential workers, which uh, meant that they were expected to be at work doing their, their jobs. But at the same time, that essential designation didn't mean that they were valued, right? In other words, they were also dealing with being disposable, you know, so the tension between being essential 
essential and disposable was something that we saw in the data, but listening to the young scholars, we are seeing them see that. We're seeing them confront that. What do you think it meant for them to be able to talk about this and, and share their reactions and, and their observations uh, collectively? I think it meant so much to them because, similar to what I said before, like they really needed community. And they would often say that even if they had a very difficult evening or difficult morning, they would always say they look forward to coming together with their sisters. So for four and a half hours to five hours a day, they knew that I would be there. They knew that they would have an opportunity to speak about how they felt that day, that they would get responses from their sisters and we would work collectively as a group. Yeah. So. Dina, in, in holding space for them, you yourself revealed something quite personal. Do you want to talk about that? You know, I um, I witnessed COVID firsthand in some pretty brutal ways. Um, my daughter is a young actor, and we were in California for about six months um, working on a, a television series. And... As COVID was moving from the East over to the West in Europe, and then it was making its way to the United States, um, we were all kind of bracing ourselves. And um, eventually production and everything, you know, shut down, schools were closed, and we were uh, flown quickly from California back to New York where we live. My goal was to just buckle down at home and you know my husband and i would do grocery shopping and we would just all like you know be together and we live in a mother-daughter home which is a two-family home with one entrance my mom and brother live upstairs my family my husband and children live downstairs and um when i got home i saw my mom and my brother we arrived on monday they looked like themselves everything was great but by tuesday it was apparent that COVID had already taken place and, you know, had taken shape with them. And um, it was like their health was just downhill from there. Mm. So by Saturday, I um, had to take my brother to the emergency room. I had to call the EMS actually, because I thought he'd had a stroke because COVID affected him neurologically. Mm. And then by, by Sunday, the following day, I had to take my mom uh, to the emergency room because She'd spiked a fever, and she had she by this time we were just learning about the 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 acute symptoms of COVID, and they were both showing them. So I, you know, we had to take my mom to the emergency room, and you know, having them in separate hospitals meant I had to you know make calls constantly, twice a day, and now family knows, and they can't get to us, so it was my job to report to family. Uh, every day. And of course, you know, my anxiety built up, you know, in a way that I'd never experienced before. But unfortunately, my mom did not make it. She uh, was in the hospital for 10 days. Um, but my brother did survive. He is, he's, he's well now, but he was in the hospital for four weeks. And then he wasn't strong enough to come home. So then we had to move him to a, uh, a, uh, a rehab facility, a nursing and rehab facility for an additional three weeks. Mm. Now, also, <laughs> while uh, this was happening, my husband and I also started showing COVID symptoms. So, um, you know, trying our best not to panic our children, we just really 
try to very calmly, <laughs> you know, take care of ourselves, take care of each other, you know, uh, isolate when fevers came up. And, um, you know, luckily we were like super health conscious and um, we were doing the vitamin C, everything that we learned about vitamin C, uh, um, the, the vitamin D or oregano oil, we were doing that. We were only cooking food at home just to make sure absolutely no dairy. Um, so we were just really leaning on keeping our diet very simple. You're, you're grieving the loss of your mom. You are um, supporting your brother. You're being the source of information for the rest of the family. And you're also battling the disease yourselves. Exactly. Exactly. So it was, it was quite a time from March to April. Yeah. And, and you, and yeah, it was March, right? So you, you all went through this tragedy in the earliest uh, weeks of it. Um, when, when folks didn't know what to expect, there wasn't a, a, a strong sense of what, um, what was happening, not even really enough information fully, uh, about how to protect themselves. So, so in, in many ways, your family is at the, you know, sort of uh, the definition of what could have been prevented had more information been available earlier, if this had been taken uh, more seriously, if people, you know, had had realized that, you know, this this is real and it's going to happen. It's not a flu. It's not a little bug. Um, it, it It is you know, absolutely devastating if if we don't really have the tools necessary to protect ourselves. Um, so, with with your own experience, then um, holding this space for for young women. First of all, I just want to thank you for being willing to hold space for them, given what you were dealing with um, yourself. What is it that you think you modeled for these young women? in being able to tell this story and still be able to hold space and lift up the need to share information? First of all, I actually didn't share my story with the scholars because I didn't want them, I didn't want to shift the way they saw me or, or, or experienced me. I didn't actually tell them the story until we pretty much finished the, uh, the program, but Saving space for the scholars was about as healing for me as it was for them as well. Because um, as you said, you know, losing my mom when we were really at the height of how it was affecting New York City in particular was terrifying because we didn't have information. So being a part of a program where we're literally finding this data and holding this data from the, the voices of Black women, where they're not just the subjects of research, but they're actually the researchers, was really very healing. Yeah. Well, you know, and you, and you mentioned then, then the, the way that this drives uh, a couple aspects of the project. One was oral history projects, uh, talking to, you know, our, our elders, and you facilitated that as well. Um, what was that like? That was a beautiful experience. Dr. Venus prepared them so well to interview these elders. Every one of them had a different approach, um, but just their ability to tell their stories was just magnificent. I really learned so much 
from every one of them. I mean, um, just brilliant, confident, strong. They all had their own ideology mm-hmm. around their blackness. Mm-hmm. I mean, every one of them were just so clear. And and what what do you think the value of the intergenerational dialogue actually was for these young women? It was powerful. It was it was it was so necessary because a lot of our young people they really only get a chance to really speak with their parents. And, you know, their parents are still operating in a mode of, you know, I'm teaching you the steps that you need to be successful in life. They haven't gotten a chance to really just relax and tell their stories. Mm. Um, This project actually got me to, uh, I started to interview my aunt, my mom's sister. Mm. And the stories I got about my family, I was like, mind was blown. So things you didn't know. Ooh, there were things, there were things I didn't know. Yeah. You know, and we ended up just laughing. She actually told me things that she'd never told anyone. Wow. So at some point she's now, you know, she sees me as an adult and she's able to tell me you know, some of her, some of her own like personal stories. Well, you know, and you, and you mentioned then, then the, the way that this drives uh, a couple aspects of the project. One was when I thought about just this whole generation who are particularly at risk, I thought, how can we hold them up so that the, the life force that they have been and the experiences that they bring to the fore as black people, many who were born and raised um, before the modern civil rights movement. If we're not able to hold their light, then our ability to understand the world we live in is diminished by that. Some of the information that we currently have about what it was like to actually be a slave happened during the period of time when the federal government was actually paying Uh, researchers to collect this information. And had they not done it, much of our understanding of our own history would have been lost. So they were able to actually interview older African-Americans who had been born into slavery, um, who had firsthand information. But one had to take seriously the need to record, to curate, to hold of these stories um, of survival. So this seemed to me to be another moment where we really needed to take stock. We need to realize that the generation that survived and struggled during segregation is a generation that we are beginning to lose, even more so now that we see the consequences of COVID. So we both wanted to gather those stories and we wanted to signal the importance of their lives. So my group, we were called the Supernova Group, and we did isolation, you know, social isolation leading to criminality in Black girls, and just understanding more how it feels to be socially isolated and why maybe acting out is a path that some kids choose. It was really interesting to have these conversations with girls that I could see myself as, I was looking at this girl and I was like, I was you three years ago, like not that long ago. I very much can still remember being you. And so it was very interesting to, and it was really nice actually to be able to give her advice and to try and give her the things that I wish I had known, you know, like, Hey baby girl, by the way, like, (laughs) so um, it was a really nice experience. And I think it was for her too. And it was nice to 
feel like I was doing something of importance. In logging her story, I was adding something important and needed to the database. It felt like a normal conversation. Like, I'm just talking with this girl, like Mia said, who I could have been and I was in the past, but then also to realize that this is like actual important research. Like, this is stuff that people need to know and people need to hear, but it's also stuff that she needed to hear and like to to support and reinforce her because I know the person I interviewed wants to go into the healthcare field and it's so important to have black women in healthcare and so to reinforce her um, and to tell her like your dreams are important because your work is so important you're you're going to save so many lives like I just think that that's something that I wish I heard I wasn't in um, the supernova group but I was in young goddess collective shout out um but it was definitely like Dr. Venus, she mentioned just in the beginning of this entire process, like who is the researcher and who is researched. And like with us being the group that is constantly researched through the white gaze, finally being, being able to like conduct that with our own agency and knowing how to create that, that comfortable environment where we're not just onlookers, like we share these experiences, like that was something that I've never, one, I've never really gotten to conduct interviews like that. And for that to be my first experience was something that was really powerful for me. I don't know if anyone's ever had like government officials like come into your school and they like watch your teachers and they watch you and they're like in the back of the room and you feel like, I don't know, you feel like you're in a Petri dish and you like are constantly like on edge, like what's going on. Um, and like, that's what I normally associate with like research interviews, like protocols. It just feels very like, I'm gonna sit in the back and like watch you and take down the notes. But this was like a really nice experience where it could feel like not transactional, but like we were both getting something out of it. And it wasn't just like, we're both getting knowledge, but like we're both getting the opportunity to like feel heard and seen. They get to tell me their story and I am constantly hearing myself in your story. And like, so in the back of my mind, I'm like, yeah, me too. Like, I don't know, it's just, it could feel like community for like the small moments that we were together in those interviews. So Dina, who were these interviewees that the young women were talking about? So each research team had uh, different criteria in terms of who they were going to interview. Um, the age range was uh, probably from 12 to 75. And I noticed they had little names for the groups. What, what were these, these names and how they come up with them? So uh, we had 12 scholars, so we broke them up into four groups of three. And they came up with their names, and they even designed, like, these little logos for each of their, their research teams. Young Goddess Collective, Supernova, AAPF's Most Wanted. <laughs> I love it. I loved it. So what did they talk about in terms of... Uh, on campus issues. I understand that there was a conversation about campus policing. Yes. The scholars were saying that um, even pre-COVID, pre-racial uprisings, they were observing that campus police was a little more aggressive, a little more present, especially when it came to dorms that were populated with, you know, the, the small number of Black students that they had. They were saying that um, very often they felt that administration didn't listen to them. They kind of always felt like they had to like advocate for themselves as the, the Black students 
on campuses. And they had to almost create their own coalitions within the predominantly white institutions that many of them attend. So what they were concerned about was most of the schools were planning to open fully on campus at the top of this semester, this fall semester. They mm -hmm. were just concerned about how campus police was going to enforce social distancing. They already knew that um, they had a lot of uh, classmates who were going to uh, push the barriers, who were going to choose to um, come together, party. They understood their population. They understood, you know, who their, their peers were. Um, what I recognize in a very, very short amount of time is how social distancing can be weaponized. You know, so as a Black body standing in space, if someone else wants you to move, then they can come close to you, and then your response should be to move further away. You'll find yourself adjusting more than ever to try to socially distance, but at the same time, it's like, uh, you know, are we really socially distancing, or are you just really moving me out of the way and pushing me to the periphery? Which is not unprecedented, right, <laughs> for the way, you know, our bodies in space have opted uh often white reaction to, to move us. Well, let's hear what they had to say about campus policing. On Stanford's campus, uh, the black community is highly concentrated on West Campus. And so that has tended to be over-policed. And so I fear with the need to regulate and enforce social distancing guidelines, I do think it's a bit scary to see like what that would look like for black students on campus. I definitely understand that fear, Gabby. I know for our school, we also have Black dorms, and we also have dorms for students of color. And you find that those are the dorms that are policed heavily by our public safety. And it took our students coming up with a Bill of Rights and actually having to sit down with the head of public safety in order to change that dynamic. And it's like, that's not a student's job. That's administration job, especially when administration is saying they're in support of Black Lives Matter. You can't just see it. You actually have to own up to it. I 100% agree. Like, they need to own up to it. And, like, for us in Boston, um, the Boston Police Department is in conjunction with most campus police. Um, so, like, the Northeastern and other schools as well, they have, like, their campus police are pretty much, like, they're indistinguishable from the actual Boston police. And so I remember we were protesting. It was a group of Black students primarily. And I was like, anyone who's been to a protest knows, like, usually you're in the middle of the street, but we're on the sidewalk. And so you just see, like, police helicopters. There's, like, police on bikes, which is like, I don't know why, like just a whole bunch of unnecessary things. And it was just a show of force. Like, it's not like a matter of safety. It's just like, let's show you how strong you can be. So that was Gabby, Anaya, and Junya. I mean, it, 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 it really does remind us that the policing problem isn't one that we can perform our way out of. Just being students, just being, you know, in black dorms or being black bodies in any dorms. Those are all triggers for a particular kind of response. I mean, I'm a, on UCLA. I've, I've been policed coming out of my office. So the fact that he, that our, our young scholars experience it, see it, and it is one of the concerns that they have going back to school 
it's just another moment of a racial burden that I'm sure, you know, most white students aren't really thinking about when they're thinking about navigating COVID. Um, did the young scholars have a sense or had they come to a point where they were able to say why it's absolutely important that these experiences and that their research actually happen and be part of a wider national conversation about the twin pandemics? They did. They were inspired to not only become researchers, but they, they wanted to learn more about legislation, which will most likely be part two of their program. They want to write a legislative letter. Mm -hmm. um, they want to make sure that the information doesn't stop with them. And it doesn't only live in the world of academia. They want to make sure that everyone is going to benefit from taking the time to compile this data and try to create a sense of, okay, what is next? What needs to be done? We can prove that this has been a very specific issue and we need very specific results. And they spoke about at the end, the impact that this summer program has had on them and in particular, the importance of carving out space for black girls, especially in the midst of these dual pandemics. So let's hear a little bit about the reflections on the Young Scholars Program. For me personally, like during this time, a lot of truth has arisen, has come to the surface about my friends, some of their beliefs, some of their biases, which have been like kind of painful personally for me. I grew up in like a predominantly white area. So a lot of my friends at home are white. And so it was hard talking to them during all this and being like, yo, like, I love you guys, but like some of your opinions are whack. And so it was really nice to be in this space because I didn't feel like I had to prove my worth ever. Like when we were talking about things, it was never like, but the economy. And I'm like, bro, who cares about the economy? I don't want to die. I, I just, I don't care about, like, like, you know, like if it's economy or my life, like I'm choosing my life and the fact that you're not choosing my life, kind of hurtful. Like, I think for a lot of non-people of color, it kind of feels like an, an opinion because their lives aren't on the line. But like for us, it's not an opinion. So I've really enjoyed this particular internship during this time because I think it was kind of like a godsend for me personally. Yeah, to like jump off of that in terms of like, growing up in a predominantly white area and predominantly white settings. But I feel like what's different for me is because of that, I'm really used to just like finding a group of black people and like we sit in a room together and we vent when something happens when there's like a racially charged incident. And because of quarantine and COVID, like I haven't been able to like get in a room with just like a lot of black girls and like talk about what's going on. Um, and so like our morning check-ins and like <laughs> our somewhat unproductive tangents have really like been that replacement for me and been like really helpful um, for being able to like um, get into like the real nuance of situations. Cause like I've had meetings with professors who like before we talk about my paper, they're like very clunkily like, I know there's like a lot going on in the world. And it's like, like I don't really, <laughs> I don't want to talk to you about this. I want you to tell me like the responses on my paper and then I will go talk to this with people I'm comfortable with. And like, this has been a place that I actually really feel comfortable talking about those things. 
even though I go to an HBCU and even though there's a lot of um, women that go to my HBCU, a lot of like the perspectives that I hear from is from the black male perspective and like my closest friends, most of them are black males and so I never had a chance to build a healthy sisterhood with just like women who young black women who understand me just like this group they check off every like thing that fulfills me whether it's the intellectual side um the uh, more emotional and self-care side literally everything they're funny they're smart they're beautiful and they're just so nice and it feels like we built a sisterhood a family and Miss Dina is like the big sister slash mom you always wanted to have too and so you know I just, I really am grateful. I've never been in the, like, group of Black women like you guys. And it's just, like, I think a really big thing for me is that, like, I thought I was chilling before, but, like, now I really wasn't. Like, I was down. I was down, and now y'all brought me up, you know? Like, Like, I grew so much from this group, and I feel so lucky, like, being around all of you guys. Like, yes, you guys are hilarious, beautiful so smart but not in the way where it's like dang i'm dumb like we're smart together and we uplift each other like there's never been a moment where i'm like do i belong like i don't know like no we're all here together to grow and to keep going and like this is this is sisterhood this is sisterhood yeah i totally agree like before this internship like i didn't have a lot of like female friends like i didn't have female friends at all because like usually girls would always exclude me and like make me feel less than I already am. And like being part of this group, being part of this group makes me feel like I'm a part of a big family. And I'll definitely ride for all y'all. And like, I know that you guys would definitely ride for me too. This is a relationship for like life. And I'm just glad to be part of the sisterhood. Y'all have me like <laughs> cry baby central. Oh my God. Um. <laughs> First of all, shout out to Ms. Dina. I've been meaning to tell you this since like the the first day. Your smile probably could cure every illness. Whenever you smile, I'm like, thank you. (laughs) Because that's exactly what I needed. Um, But yeah, thank you all for like allowing me to be a part of everything with you. And yeah, big love. Mia, Carly, Kasaya, Kayla, Kimberly, Aaron. And it sounds like your family has just now grown. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. This is definitely, you know, proof of that saying it takes a village, right? If it takes a village to raise a child in the best of circumstances, what does it take in the middle of twin pandemics? There was there was space to be filled, space to be held. Um, and families of choice seem to have grown out of it. I think the most important thing is that um, we gave 12 young scholars the opportunity to take their own voices seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, they realize that they really do have a lot to offer, that they aren't working, you know, in isolation, that as much as they feel like unicorns, that they are part of a society of unicorns and what can happen when they, they do work together and they do allow themselves to be vulnerable in front of each other Mm -hmm. and support each other as sisters as well as academics. Mm -hmm. 
So already we're, we're seeing our young scholars thrive and going out and really, you know, being beacons for other black women and girls. Um, so I'm really excited about this. I look forward to not only seeing what this generation does, but seeing the program grow. I hope, Dina Wright-Joseph, that it grows with you. We'll be able to have you back, yes? Definitely. Wonderful. And I also want to take the opportunity to thank the grant makers for Girls of Color who made this program possible, and also Dr. Venus Evans-Winters, who brought so much of her knowledge and experience to this program to make it possible. And thanks, finally, to the wonderful sisters, the wonderful young women of AAPF's first Young Scholars Program. Thanks, Dina, for joining us. Thank you. Intersectionality Matters is produced by Julia Sharp Levine. This episode was co-produced and edited by Alexandra Moore and Whitney Thomas. The conversation in today's episode was crafted and curated by Dina Wright-Joseph and AAPF's Young Scholars Program. More information on the voices behind today's episode can be found in the episode notes. You can support us by leaving a review on iTunes, following us on social media, and signing up for our Patreon page. Intersectionality Matters is supported by you, our listeners. If you value conversations like these, consider donating at aapf.org. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. Intersectionality Matters.